it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, April 12th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern and around the clock on demand on our podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. We are loaded up today with a very busy lineup. We'll get to our first guest here in a moment. We will also check in later this hour with Darren Porcher, who's a former NYPD lieutenant. He will weigh in on our lead story here. Later on in our middle hour, Carol Markowitz will join us on a host of topics. Charles Payne from the Fox Business Network will also be breaking down the absolutely brutal, devastating March inflation report that dropped this morning. The White House was warning it was going to be bad, and it was very bad. Details with Charles coming up later. And then Kimberly Strassel of The Wall Street Journal. We will talk to her about the Hunter Biden story, the media crossover, and how that's relevant, and also her reporting on COVID relief and this claim that the government is suddenly out of money on core COVID tasks. Having spent trillions already, we will get some specifics from Kim Strassel later in today's show. But we begin with our top story and a Fox News alert. Earlier this morning during peak commuting hours, there was an incident at a Brooklyn subway station involving a gunman who was allegedly wearing a gas mask. There was some sort of gas released into a subway car And this man began shooting. He claimed multiple victims, although all of them appear to be okay, at least to the extent that they're going to survive. That was the latest report that we got. And what's been very strange about this story is really the lack of information, how slowly information is coming in. I have not seen, for example, any photographs or images of the suspect yet. Details, at least in some key areas, remain scant. But late this morning, right around noon, there was a press conference held, and the NYPD commissioner did give us some information. Let's listen to Cut 15. I want to begin by assuring the public that there are currently no known explosive devices on our subway trains, and this is not being investigated as an act of terrorism at this time. We can also report that although this was a violent incident, reportedly we have no one with life-threatening injuries as a result of this case. This investigation is only hours old, so please note this information is subject to change. And she went on and cut 16. Listen here. Just before 8.24 this morning, as a Manhattan-bound end train waited to enter the 36th Street station, an individual on that train donned what appeared to be a gas mask. He then took a canister out of his bag and opened it. The train at that time began to fill with smoke. He then opened fire, striking multiple people on the subway and in the platform. Again, we will describe him as an individual. He is being reported as a male black, approximately five feet, five inches tall with a heavy build. 
He was wearing a green construction type vest and a hooded sweatshirt. The color is gray. Then the deputy commissioner at the fire department of New York City added a few more details about the victims in cut 17. This morning, the FDNY received reports of gunshot victims in the subway. Thanks to their quick response, we were able to treat 16 patients. Ten of those patients are suffering from gunshot wounds at this time, and five of them are in critical but stable condition in our local hospitals. Can you say that again? Yes, we have 16 total patients. Ten of them are suffering from gunshot wounds, and five of them are in critical but stable condition at this time. So it seems as though, thank God, everyone's going to survive. Ten people were shot, other people hospitalized, presumably with things like smoke inhalation. And we don't know really anything about the suspect, about the motive at this hour. We do know that officials in New York are putting out the tip line for people to call in with any information at 800-577-TIPS, 800-577-TIPS. And separately, last clip here before we get to our guest, the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, saying that the city and officials will get to the bottom of this and the perpetrator will be brought into custody. Cut 18. I wish to thank all of the first responders who responded to the scene or at the local hospitals helping in today's incident. You are what make New York the greatest city in the world. And I thank you for supporting your fellow New Yorkers. To today's incident, as of now, we have not found any live explosive devices. But the suspect in today's attack detonated smoke bombs to cause havoc. We will not allow New Yorkers to be terrorized, even by a single individual. Well, that single individual, and we have no idea if there were any accomplices, no indication of that at this time, has fled, and there is a huge manhunt underway for whoever this is. We are getting some additional information breaking in the last few minutes, and joining us now from our New York headquarters is Eric Sean, Fox News anchor and senior correspondent. And, Eric, it's good of you to join us. Thank you. Hey, guy, good to be with you. I mean, this is a wild one. This is just so bizarre. As you just heard, the suspect, uh, a black male, five foot, five inches tall, with a green vest, the subway train is an end line, the third car in the end train going toward Manhattan. It's in Brooklyn. It stops in the tunnel because there's another subway train in front of it. At that point is when the riders say he put on the gas mask, took out from his bag a smoke canister, and filled that car with smoke. So much smoke you couldn't see in front of your face, they said. Then he opened fire. You said 10 were shot. A miracle that no one's been killed. Really? Five, yeah, five in critical condition, uh, but all, as you say, expected to survive. Then uh, he fled. Uh, what's what's just ridiculous is that the, the cameras in that subway station apparently weren't working. So right now, the, uh, you, the first of all, the authorities guy have a lot more information than they've released. We expect another mm-hmm. press conference in about two hours from now. Uh, they have recovered reports say the gun. He left the gun behind. There are more canisters he left behind, and there's a, a bag of fireworks. Also, authorities are are now looking for a U-Haul with Arizona plates. It doesn't mean it came from Arizona because, you know, when you rent the U-Haul, a lot of them have plates from other states right. uh, that could be could some way be connected to this. They're not calling it terrorism, although he terrorized. They do believe it was a lone, at least at this point, a lone gunman involved in, you know, some deranged uh, issue 
uh, to do this on a, a New York City subway right and during rush hour at 8.30 this morning and Guy in about two hours, you're going to have uh, the evening rush hour and this guy's still out there. Mm-hmm. And I see that there are sources telling the media now that authorities believe that they have some cell phone footage from a witness that does show the suspect. We don't have that image yet. The authorities will have to make a decision if and when to release that. I mean, if they're hunting for someone and they're asking the public to help, which they are, they're putting out the tip line, I would imagine a photo or an image of that individual would be a very useful thing to put out there unless there's some pressing reason that they might have to hold it back. We're also seeing reports on another network that there's a bag of items connected to this alleged shooter that the police have in their custody right now. Yeah, those would be so, the fireworks. I mean, right, the fireworks. So were those the unexploded incendiary devices that we were hearing about earlier in yeah, the they, day, they, fireworks? They were. We also have reports that there was other canisters, so they may be in the bag because it was apparently a smoke canister uh, that w- that that this suspect used. I mean, just think of, just think of the thinking that went into this. To be in a subway car that's closed, it stops between stations, you can't get out. He explodes this smoke canister and then opens fire. I mean, talk about, you know, terror. We've had incidents before in 2020, a subway motorman tragically died when a homeless man set a garbage can on fire in a, in a subway. Uh, 2017, there was a pipe bomb in a, in a hallway by Penn Station. And of course, back in 1993, Colin Ferguson, he uh, was a mentally ill uh, gunman who opened fire at a Long Island Railroad station in suburban Long Island. That was seen as a racial incident in a way he's black. The uh, the victims were uh, suburban uh, commuters. I talked to uh, Ferguson at the time. He denied he hated white people. Uh, but that was the really the last terror-type incident that we've had, something like this, that happened on, on a New York uh, – here in New York City in terms of a subway or a Yeah, and, and just to be clear, we have absolutely no idea what the motives behind today's attack are. That's correct. And I- we, we might not know that for some time. I'm just struck by a few things that you said, Eric. Yeah. Number one, this is basically – and this is not rocket science here, but this is the definition of premeditated. If you're going to pull a gas mask out, you have to go you know, procure a gas mask – with the plan of releasing smoke into this enclosed space so you would be okay and have the ability to go and shoot as many people in the ensuing chaos as possible. As you say, it's also miraculous that given all of the advantages that this suspect apparently built into the situation for himself, that it appears, at least for now, that he was unsuccessful in claiming any victims' lives, uh, you know, in a fish-in-a-barrel type situation that is extraordinary and, and maybe one of the silver linings here. That That's true. Uh, and I also want to point out that police made it very clear at first because it's kind of an Asian area, a neighborhood of uh, and of, of immigrants. Uh, police make it clear that there was no ethnicity and no racial aspect involved in this because the victims, people were shot. Look, we're all, it's a mosaic. Uh, Mayor David Dickens called New York City the gorgeous mosaic. Everyone, if you're the multimillionaire guy, as you know, or if you're, you know, walking on the streets, everyone rides the subway um, and everyone's together in the subway. And that is one of the gorgeous joys and celebrations of New York, that that we're all basically the same when you get up, when you put your uh, two, metro card in there and, and get on the subway. 
who knows what this motivation was? I mean, mm-hmm. where are we, I've been talking to police and others today. It's like this is it's, it's not seen as a direct attack on something. Uh, years ago, there was the mad bomber in New York, George Metesky, who for decades planted bombs, little bombs in, in theaters and in, in phone booths. He was mad at Con Edison, the utility company, because they denied his uh, his, his uh, uh, workman's comp completely. Why would someone – as you say, premeditated this so much. He, he got the gun, he got a gas mask, he got these canisters, and you got to get them from somewhere. Someone knows who this is. People know who this guy is because he bought this yep. stuff somehow. And, and he, he may have rented a U-Haul, and, and they're looking yeah. for a U-Haul with Arizona plates. You have no idea where that would be necessarily rented because, you know, people drop off these these trucks all over the country going from, you know, point A to point B. And, you know, to this other point that you made, this other observation, we have no idea, you know, what was behind this and what was in this person's head or heart. It would be difficult to target, I would imagine, any specific type of person based on their appearance or based on their race in an environment where just there's gas everywhere and and smoke everywhere. You can't see anything, right? So that's the sort of, that feels very, not just premeditated, of course, but also a degree of indiscriminate violence. And so I think a lot of people are getting ready to commute home in New York City in Mm -hmm. the next couple hours. And as long as this suspect is still on the loose, still on the lam, not even identified, I think you'll have a lot of people on edge in New York City, uh, at least until that happens, Eric. And I know that you're going to be following all of this. I know there's a press conference upcoming later. Uh, And as we get more information and hopefully a resolution to this and some justice, We'll be keeping our audience up to date. Yeah. Eric Sean is a Fox News anchor and senior correspondent here at the network. Eric, I appreciate it. Thank you. you. And I expect a photo uh, perhaps released in the next few hours. Yeah, I would not be, be surprised. You. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. We appreciate all of those details from you. We are just getting started on The Guy Benson Show today. Please stay tuned. Much more to come, including a former NYPD lieutenant with his analysis on this story Plus, politics of the day, the inflation report, and much more. It's The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. And we led with our top story, which is this attack in New York City. But a huge national story today is inflation. And on that front, we bring you a Fox News alert. As we await President Biden's remarks in Iowa any moment on this subject, we are not going to take the president's remarks here on the show live. Because the president will not have, in my opinion, credible information or credible solutions to share. We'll get a lot of spin. We'll get a lot of political talking points. We will get some, if I had to guess, dishonesty and blame shift. And I'm not going to subject all of you to that. This is someone who is not dealing with the problem well, who has made the problem worse, who wanted to make the problem even worse. So I'm not really all that interested in what his next idea is. 
because it's been destructive enough. It's interesting, though. I did see a source sent me this who lives in Iowa, some photographs of billboards that the Republican Party in Iowa put up near the airport in Des Moines, which is where Air Force One landed earlier. And it basically welcomes President Biden back to the Hawkeye state. One of the billboards has the words highest inflation in 40 years and then a picture of Biden pointing at those words. And then in big sort of this red side graphic, Joe did that. Then an almost identical billboard, same thing, Biden pointing, Joe did that. Gas prices up 93 percent since Biden's last visit. So if Biden happened to be looking out the window of his motorcade on his way from the airport to this event that he's doing to talk about inflation and probably blame Putin and attack Republicans and all the other excuses that we've all heard so many times, he will see some of those facts. And they are facts, both of them. Here's the latest from The Wall Street Journal today and a reminder that coming up in our next hour, we will get Charles Payne on this program from FBN. He will give us his analysis of today's report on inflation. And this is how it was written up in the journal. U.S. inflation surged to a new four-decade high of 8.5 percent in March from the same month a year ago, driven by skyrocketing energy and food costs. The Labor Department said Tuesday that the Consumer Price Index, which measures what consumers pay for goods and services, last month rose at its fastest annual pace since December 1981, up from the 7.9% annual rate in February. Rising prices have been unrelenting, with six straight months of inflation above 6%, well above the Federal Reserve's average 2% target. So March was the worst number since 1981. If I'm not mistaken, my parents weren't even married yet. Last time it was this bad. I was still a glimmer in their eye, years off from showing up on the scene. I mean, when inflation is at the sort of the terrible levels that were a vestige of the Carter administration, that is a very bad place to be as a country. And it is hurting American families every single day, and it's getting worse. And we'll go through some of the numbers and walk through the implications with Charles Payne coming up. But first, when we return, we toggle back to this situation, the manhunt in New York City with former NYPD Lieutenant Darren Porcher. He's next on The Guy Benson Show. You don't want to miss that conversation straight ahead. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Glad you're here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free, and we are following a major story that started this morning in New York City, a shooting in the subway in Brooklyn. And it wasn't just a run-of-the-mill shooting. It was a mass shooting, 10 victims, all of whom 
we believe are going to survive, which is amazing, in a subway car that was filled with smoke deliberately by the perpetrator who put on a smoke or gas mask before opening fire. We do not have an image, at least publicly yet, of the suspect. We don't have a name. We don't have a motive. It's still early hours, but there are a lot of people probably nervous as the afternoon and evening rush is about to begin in New York City with this person still out there, unidentified and not in custody. Joining us now is Darren Porcher, a former NYPD lieutenant. And Darren, it's good to have you here. Thanks for having me on as a guest. I want to start with a soundbite that we played near the top of the show. This is the NYPD commissioner earlier, and there's one thing that she said that I want to focus on. Cut 15, listen. I want to begin by assuring the public that there are currently no known explosive devices on our subway trains, and this is not being investigated as an act of terrorism at this time. We can also report that although this was a violent incident, reportedly we have no one with life-threatening injuries as a result of this case. This investigation is only hours old, so please note this information is subject to change. And that was a few hours ago. So I heard her say that this is not, quote, being investigated as an act of terrorism at this time. How is that determination made? Because we got very few details at that press conference. One of the few that we gleaned was this was not, at least in the eyes of the officials in New York City, a terrorist act. How does that decision get made? What are the factors that go into an announcement like that? Well, I believe that that was a premature statement because you need the perpetrator to introduce their ideology, why they did it. But if you don't have the the perpetrator in custody, it's very difficult for you to make the assessment that you don't deem this as an act of terror. We don't know what was going through the mind of the assailant. When we think of terrorist acts, we generally think of acts that are driven towards disrupting the population based on a political agenda, such as destroying a power plant because these are Americans, a poisoning a water supply because these people are Americans. We really don't have that information on hand. So when I, have heard, when I heard the police commissioner make that statement, um, I thought it was premature. However, if she has information that I don't have, then it would be a plausible statement, meaning I genuinely believe that they already know the identity of the assailant in this particular case. Because normally when we don't know the identity of an assailant, we're flooding the airways with pictures, see something, say something. But that hasn't happened. It's merely been statements of this is what happened. And if you do get some information, forward it to us. However, there hasn't been that blast of photographs. Because the average person in a place like New York is photographed or videotaped 100 to 200 times a day. Everyone had the cell phones out. In addition to that, there were um, the images of the assailant were captured when they exited the subway system by, by as simple as the, the business owners. You have business for storefronts that were all over that area. So images were captured of the assailant, but that information hasn't been blasted. Okay, so they're not giving us the information that they have. I've seen various reports out there that they believe that they do have at least one photo of who this is. If they're asking for help, and I would assume that if this person had been brought into custody, they would be sharing that with us already. If they know, based on your theory here, which seems plausible to me, if they know who he is 
where they know at least what he looks like. And they've given a, a description of his body type, his height, his race. He's like a five five black guy with a heavy build and what he was wearing. They put all of that out there, a gray sweatshirt, some sort of a green vest. If they're willing to share that information with the public and they don't have this person in handcuffs yet and they believe he's out there, what would be a reason to withhold some of the information, name, photograph, et cetera, from the public? What is the strategic thinking potentially behind a decision like that from authorities? I believe that the police have operatives that are working on behalf of law enforcement at this point, and they don't want to disrupt the um, the action that they already have moving forward. So case in point, if the assailant believes that they've actually gotten away with it and they feel as if he can hide in plain sight, they don't want to reveal their hand to the assailant. And that's what my um, philosophy on this is. Because just time and time again, I found whenever we are, are unfamiliar with the identity of an assailant, that's when we put out these blasts of pictures, and it just mm-hmm. hasn't happened. And I guess the other side of it, and again, I'm just a novice here, just a layperson, if you haven't caught the guy and you know who he is, wouldn't it be beneficial to have millions of eyeballs looking for him as opposed to a much smaller pool of people who might have access to that photo? And if you're trying to find him somewhere in New York or get a sense of where he went, unless they really feel like they've got a good beat on where he is and they're going to go you know, actively grab him in short order – isn't there potentially at least an advantage to have an entire population of a city looking out for someone? Uh, you know, is that the flip side of this? And I guess they have to weigh which one is more beneficial to their interests. That's a great perspective to have. In a city like New York, we have eight and a half million residents, and we have um, far less members of law enforcement. So the public could function as our greatest asset. But at the same token, I genuinely believe this is an instance where law enforcement does not want to tip their hand because mm-hmm. they have plausible information that will lead them to an apprehension of the assailant in this case. What comes next in an investigation like this? Obviously, we all hope and pray this person gets caught as soon as possible, does no further damage. There's a gun recovered and, and some other things like fireworks and smoke canisters. Yeah, so if, if this person is caught, we hope very soon, and does not hurt anyone else in the meantime, we very much are rooting for that outcome. We are praying for the people in the hospital. There are five who were, at least as of a few hours ago, in critical but stable condition. No one has been killed. They're not expecting anyone to die. Uh, That was at least the indication that they gave at the press conference earlier. What comes next? I mean, are there questions about, is this a lone wolf? Did this person act alone? There are questions about this U-Haul with license plates. Where did that come from? Just walk us through the process of an investigation in its earliest hours with obviously huge implications given the person's still at large and may or may not have accomplices somewhere. Law enforcement is going to conduct what we refer to as a backwards investigation. Where the incident occurred is going to be ground zero for where we start our approach on recovering um, discovery. When I say discovery, meaning physical evidence, um, statements from witnesses, the direction of flight, um, what video can be recovered from the direction of flight. So it's going to start from where the shooting um, transpired, and it's going to end to wherever the video takes them or the investigation takes them. So it's one of these things that um, 
I don't want to say it's difficult to do, but it requires resources. And when we look at the seismic shift in the technological innovations in policing, it's taken us leaps and bounds from where we were in the 70s. We have so many other additional additives that can impact or assist law enforcement in capturing an individual much more than just, I saw something happen. And so that's what law enforcement is going to capitalize on, those technological innovations, as I mentioned earlier, the average person is photographed or videotaped 100 to 200 times a day in a place like New York. You really don't have an expectation of privacy when you're out in public. And so law enforcement is going to capitalize on those resources and bringing that person to justice. Our guest here on The Guy Benson Show is former NYPD Lieutenant Darren Porcher. Last question. In your experience, and based on what we publicly know, because as you have noted, and I think you're almost indisputably right about this, the authorities, the law enforcement community in New York has a lot more information than they're letting on, or at least letting us know about. But based on everything that at least we know publicly at this point in time, many hours now after the shooting, what is the single most important or single most valuable piece of evidence that we know of that NYPD has in its possession right now when it comes to tracking this perpetrator down? Well, it's going to be difficult to assess what the single most significant piece is because it's the collaboration of all of the physical evidence that's recovered. We have uh, allegedly we have a gun that was recovered on the scene, so that gun can have telling information in terms of where it was acquired, um, who acquired the weapon. We also have a smoke canister that was recovered. Could there be potentially uh, fingerprints on both? Sure. We can also look where this smoke canister was acquired from. Who acquired it? The same holds true with, as I mentioned, with the gun. In addition to that, video um, that we have from people that that have captured images of the suspect as he exited the subway mm-hmm. car. Additionally, we have witnesses that, that that were able to observe the subject shoot people in the process of his violent attack on the subway. So it's a collaboration of all of those aspects of physical um, evidence as well as observations that will enhance the prosecution of the assailant moving forward. Darren Porcher is a former NYPD lieutenant and our expert guest here on the show as we cover this unfolding story in New York City. We really appreciate it, sir. Thank you for your time and insight today. Thanks for having me as a guest, and enjoy the rest of your afternoon. You bet. Thank you. And all we can say until we get any more information is we hope and we pray that NYPD and other law enforcement finds the guy and nails him as soon as possible, that he does no more damage in the interim, and that all of his victims survive. And on that final score, it's looking pretty good. And as of right now, the suspect, all that we know about him is that it is a male, a black male, Roughly 5'5", so uh, on the shorter side, heavy build, and at the time of the attack was wearing a gray sweatshirt, a green vest, and of course, while inside that shooting gallery of a subway car, a gas mask as well. Indiscriminate, murderous efforts, and at least it appears that he has failed on the murderous part. Thank God. We will take a break. When we come back, the latest out of Ukraine, some big developments there as well. A very heavy news hour to start this program today on the Tuesday edition of The Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. 
As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, I want to bring you some new developments out of Ukraine and the war there, the invasion by the Russian military, which has now been basically beaten back into the south and eastern portions of the country. Although I saw just minutes ago our colleague who is on the ground in Kiev was reporting air raid sirens were blaring. And I know that that's been happening, I think, throughout the evening. And so we continue to keep everyone there in our prayers. But the capital city is not necessarily out of the woods, but the Russian presence surrounding that city has been moved. And that's that's not new news. But Trey Yingst is back there in Kiev, and he says uh, those sirens have been sounding. I think his last tweet was like eight minutes ago. They were sounding again. Vladimir Putin, the authoritarian leader of Russia, has said publicly that the peace talks, the negotiations with the Ukrainians, are right now dead. So any prospect or hope of getting some kind of a permanent or serious ceasefire is looking pretty bleak at this moment, at least. It's a dead end, Putin says. And we talked about this briefly yesterday. I think that there's a pretty strong prevailing sentiment among the Ukrainian population that they don't want to make concessions to the Russians. They want to beat the Russians into submission. They want to drive the Russians out of their country. They're not in a mood to surrender any of their land over to Moscow. And I cited a poll that was done of Ukrainians. And again, you can ask methodologically, how do you conduct a poll in a country that's just completely ravaged by war with people displaced by the millions? It's a fair question. But even if you give a huge amount of like a margin for error in this poll, 82 percent of Ukrainians said basically not one inch of land. So if that's how the people of Ukraine feel, and it's hard to argue with that, it would make sense that at least for now, talks would be at a standstill or a dead end, to use the turn of phrase from Vladimir Putin. There are now reports, allegations, that some sort of chemical weapon may have been used in Mariupol, city in the south, the southern region of Ukraine, which has been totally decimated by Russian bombing. I mean, just the overhead drone footage of that city. I mean, it's not even really a city anymore. It's a shell, just a bombed out shell. But there are still holdouts fighting tooth and nail with the Russians. And the allegation, at least, is that the Russian used the Russian military used some form of a chemical agent. An airborne chemical agent on their enemies. Now, the Pentagon said today they could not confirm those reports yet. And I mean, you'd have to ask, how would those be quickly and easily confirmed given what's happened in that city? It's not like you can just, you know, stroll in and do analyses. It's just it's a total war zone with five figures when it comes to civilian casualties. We do know that the president of the United States, Joe Biden, said that there would be very serious consequences. Of course, at one point he said we would respond in kind if the Russians use chemical weapons. That was one of the many cleanups and walkbacks that the staff has had to do at the White House with this president. But he did reiterate there would be extremely serious responses from the United States and from the West and NATO if chemical weapons were used. 
And so I would like to know what that would mean. I know Peter Ducey asked him that question. He said he would never tell Peter, well, it might not be hypothetical anymore. So let's wait and see if we can get confirmation on that. On one hand, we don't have that confirmation, and the U.S. government made that point today. On the other hand, we know that the Russians have very few scruples about using such weapons, whether it's in Chechnya or certainly in Syria. And one of the military leaders whose hallmark is using these types of weapons uh, has been elevated in this conflict as the Russians have been getting their asses kicked. So that would potentially be an announcement like a calling card if it's the case, if it can be confirmed. One other very interesting development internally within Russia, and this is from foxnews.com, Russia's invasion of Ukraine appears not to be going according to plan, and President Vladimir Putin seems intent on blaming his old colleagues at the Federal Security Bureau, the SFB, which is the intelligence agency's successor to the KGB. Putin has reportedly purged more than 100 agents from the SFB, and his government sent the head of the department responsible for Ukraine to prison. This according to a Times of London report saying that 150-plus SFB officers have been dismissed. One of the leaders is in prison. Other people have just been cut loose. So there is an old Stalin-esque Soviet-era purge going on right now in the intelligence ranks in Russia, which really tells you everything you have to know about whether or not this is the way Putin was expecting things to play out. Another hour here coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show live in Washington, D.C., our Tony Snow studios at the Fox News Bureau here in our nation's capital. Thank you for listening. Three to six Eastern every weekday, Guy Benson Show Dot com for the free podcast. And we begin the middle hour with a string of Fox News alerts, starting with this one. The Dow closes down today, 87 points, finishing at 34,220. Also on the story that we led with at the top of the show, a Fox News alert. Authorities in New York City now planning another press conference sometime in the 5 p.m. Eastern hour with some updates in that case involving a shooting this morning in Brooklyn inside a subway car. And we'll be monitoring that for you here to see if there's any major news that will come out of that press conference again sometime at least scheduled to be roughly an hour from right now. And on a totally separate note, but still breaking news, this Fox News alert. Comedy legend Gilbert Gottfried, dead at the age of 67. That just coming across his family, sharing the news in a tweet, a statement. And we have done a number of tributes on this show just in the last few months to major big-name comedians. From Norm MacDonald to Bob Saget to Louis Anderson and now Gilbert Gottfried. I remember a buddy of mine was getting married a few years ago, and he was having his bachelor party weekend in a beautiful area, Asheville, North Carolina, and we'd rented out this house 
through Airbnb, this old school southern house, had a big wraparound porch. And one night after a day of going to the bars and breweries and that sort of thing, we just hung out on the porch and played Gilbert Gottfried YouTube videos. And boy, was he funny. Often wildly inappropriate, but very funny. And he'll be missed, and, and that's just been a rough few months for comedians here. Gilbert Gottfried has died at the age of 67. With all of that, let's get to our next guest. She is Carol Markowitz, friend of the program, columnist at the New York Post and for foxnews.com. Carol, welcome back to the show. Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, do you have any initial reaction to this attack that we've all been following in your former city, New York City, earlier today? Yeah. I mean, I, my heart goes out to everybody. It's a train that I took off in. Um, it's a stop that I know well. Uh, it's just it's really devastating that New York is going through this today. Um, I, I got some news that I shared on my Twitter about uh, fireworks being found at the scene as well as a Glock pistol. Um, and the, the police are currently looking for a U-Haul uh, with Arizona plates, which I know a lot of U-Hauls actually have Arizona plates. And um, I, I shared the number on my Twitter that people that the police officers are looking for right now. The license plate. Yes. Okay. And if people want to find you on Twitter, yes. you're at Carol with a K, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. Well, thank you for that information. And I want to ask you now about another New York-related news story, uh, not nearly as scary as this one, but also quite significant. We haven't mentioned it yet today. The sitting, serving lieutenant governor of New York State, Mm -hmm. a Democrat, has been arrested on bribery charges. So Kathy Hochul was the lieutenant governor. She is now governor because the previous governor resigned in disgrace, although there's discussions about whether or not he wants to come back. So the newly Mm -hmm. elevated new lieutenant governor is now under arrest on bribery charges. Uh, That story has sort of gotten crushed a little bit under the, the weight of the rest of the news, obviously involving New York City. But... It has been uh, quite a stretch here for New York state politicians. And I wonder, I, look, <laughs> really I know has. New York is, is a very blue state, but mm-hmm. in a red year and the Democrats in this kind of disarray and corruption and all sorts yeah. of stuff, do you think there's a realistic possibility for someone like Lee Zeldin running for governor on the Republican side to actually have a shot in the fall? I mean, there is a possibility. New York is a very blue state, and I think it's becoming more blue all the time as people leave New York. I, I really think that this mass migration out of New York State has been primarily red voting people. So I think it's getting bluer. Um, it, it is possible because things have gotten so bad that it, that and when things get sort of to the rock bottom, it's where New Yorkers reach for other kinds of leadership. Um, so it's not it's not completely out of the realm of possibility, but unlikely. Uh, but, yeah, I would say New York has had quite a run of uh, scandals. I mean, going back to Elliot Spitzer as governor, Eric Schneiderman as attorney general, and they've really had just a wild ride of uh, resignations and criminal charges. I mean, Anthony Weiner, right? Anthony Weiner comes to yeah. mind. <laughs> well, right, Anthony Weiner, but he was a congressman. But yes, absolutely. Um, it's it's really been sort of amazing and insane to watch. And the details of this, in case you're curious, this is Brian Benjamin, 
lieutenant governor of New York, a Democrat, indicted for alleged bribery and other offenses in what federal prosecutors say was a scheme to get campaign contributions in exchange for state grants. The indictment also alleges that the lieutenant governor and others worked to cover up that plot, engaging in, quote, a series of lies and deception, which, uh, again, seems to be kind of like a tradition, a great tradition, at least recently, (laughs) in New York politics, a scheme with a bunch of lies and cover up. So maybe this lieutenant governor is getting a a phone call today from a former governor and they can commiserate together. In the meantime, Carol, you're down in Florida. I've talked a fair amount about this on the show. I did a big monologue on it yesterday Mm -hmm. as well. This whole gender identity, sexual orientation, education Mm -hmm. question and the law down in Florida. Now some bills introduced in other states. I think some of those other bills are significantly worse, in my view, than Mm -hmm. what happened in Florida. And the bill in Florida, of course, was, I think, mischaracterized by a lot of people. I'm interested in your perspective on this for a few different reasons. Number one, you're a mother, number two, Mm -hmm. you know, of school age kids. Number two, you are someone who is, I would say, fairly, and correct me if I'm wrong, libertarian to progressive on a lot of LGBT related issues. You're not yeah, super socially conservative on this stuff. <laughs> yes. uh, but you you have some strong feelings these days. You've written about them. Tell us about yeah. how you're feeling on this stuff. So, yeah, I would say that if I had to point to my most left issue, it would be on LGBT issues. Uh, I'm a very let live and let live kind of person. I grew up with people that, you know, we used to just refer to as gender bending or androgynous. Trans wasn't really a term that they used to describe themselves at the time. Um, but, you know, boys who wore dresses or girls who wore suits, it was all fine with, with us. Um, and what's happened or what's changed is uh, that it, it's no longer, first of all, it's no longer something that only grown-ups do. It's become something that is very widely spread among children. And it's very specifically um, happening to teenage and preteen girls. It is absolutely a social contagion. It's not what it was or, or not what I saw um, somebody declaring themselves trans. It's it's now like a personality that you try on or um you know, gender nonconforming has become what you say you are when you just kind of don't feel right in your body. Or yeah, queer. non-binary, very common. Um, so all of that is very concerning to me. And it's extra concerning to me that it starts at a, such a young age where they're being told in schools, and I've seen this, I've, had, I've seen the books, uh, where they're being told that you can be a boy today, you can be a girl tomorrow, you can be um, neither gender the next day or both genders the day after that. And all of this, I think kids are very susceptible to suggestion, and I don't like any of this at all, and especially at the very young levels. I think my my sixth grader can sort of shrug it off, but my kindergartner and my third grader, I am concerned that they will get an idea in their head. You know, my, my, my kindergartner today was saying that he likes pink, and my, my third grader was like, oh, isn't that a girl color? And he's like, no, I can like whatever I want. But, I, you know, the idea that like, oh, I like pink, therefore I'm a girl is one that I don't want to introduce to him. I, I, I like the idea that he can like whatever he wants and still be a boy, and he can be open to all kinds of things that we maybe we associate with girls, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I also don't like the idea of a sporty girl immediately being uh, labeled as non-binary or, or, or a boy just because she, she likes sports, maybe she's a tomboy. Um, all of this is 
troubling to me. And so, yeah, I used to consider myself fairly, I mean, libertarian on trans issues. But what what has happened is they've pushed me into a corner where I, in order for me to be pro-trans, I have to be okay with my kindergartner being taught lessons on it in class. And I'm just not okay with that. And I'm also not no, okay neither with are most mother people. being erased and women, the word women, woman being erased. I, I'm not down with any of that. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with most of what you said there, I do think that we're seeing – and this is another monologue that we did on the show recently. I think our whole conversation about all of this stuff is just terrible because you'll have some people on the left saying, well, if you think like Carol Markowitz and you support a bill, let's say, like the one that was signed into law down in Florida, uh, you're going to get trans kids killed. You're going to kill kids, right? That's one side. And then you've got this talking point on the right these days that's gaining steam that if you disagree with some of this stuff, you're a groomer. And people are tossing that word around very loosely. And I think you know, groomer has a specific meaning, and it's a very serious one. And I think smearing a bunch of people as groomers is actually pretty gross and counterproductive. I think we can maybe have these debates on the merits. I know that's wild to think about these days without just you know smearing folks all over the place. But it seems like smear and fear is what we're doing right now. Yeah. So I think that I, I would never use the word groomer to describe anybody. I, I do I do wish we were having a very different conversation. But I think it, it has to be said that, you know, my very kind of left-leaning position is anti-trans now, right? I'm anti—it's considered anti-LGBT. Um, it's also—we've been called racist for any time we don't want CRT taught in schools. These labels have been really thrown around, fascist. I mean, all of it. I, I hear it constantly. So well, and by the way, the right Carol, thing, and that's—I'm yeah. glad that you brought up CRT because this—and I, I said this yesterday— this debate reminds me in some ways of the CRT Very discussion much. because yeah. they tell us over and over again that we're absolutely crazy for objecting right. to something that isn't real. It's not really happening. It's in your heads. This is some made-up culture war thing by people mm-hmm. on the right, these bigots. And then as soon as you bring concrete evidence you know, and proof, then they either just ignore you or they say, well, actually, that's a good thing. And sort of the gaslighting comes to an end. There's there's a common thread there, I think. Yeah, exactly. I think that, you know, the idea that the Florida law was not necessary was was one that I heard a lot. And then New Jersey, uh, we, we learned, is basically doing the exact thing that Florida just banned, which is teaching this exact type of thing to second graders. Um, they, we've seen lesson plans where it, they literally talk about the fact that you don't need to choose a gender. You can be a girl or a boy or neither or both, and it doesn't matter from day right, to day. That's in state guidance um, in New Jersey. It's happening. Yeah, it, it's absolutely happening. Um, so, but yeah, but the the name calling, I think that conservatives have had enough of being called names, and they're like, okay, you call us the worst things ever, Nazi, you know, fascist, etc. We have a name for you now, groomer. And I, again, I don't like it. I wish it wasn't so. But a lot of people fighting back on this are saying, look, we've been targeted for so long. This is how they learn how it feels. And I kind of understand them. Yeah, no, I, I kind of get it, but I also feel like them call as a substitute for an argument, calling us racist yeah. or bigots or whatever, right. is mm-hmm. terrible, and we say that shouldn't happen. I just don't think yeah. it is a good counterpoint. Like the solution, to this is like, well, let's let's call everyone that we disagree with child <laughs> molesters or groomers, right. and that'll be directed mm-hmm. at at. Here's the thing: 
Carol, you could be called from the left a racist bigot who wants mm-hmm. kid de- uh, kids dead. Right. And also because you are actually pro-LGBT in a lot of meaningful ways, if you were to raise an objection, let's say, to the yeah. Louisiana bill, which I did yesterday, you'll have some people coming after you as a groomer. Uh, you know, And I've gotten this too. I just think it's all pretty toxic. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, again, I wish it weren't so. And I, I, during the Trump years, I did this thing where I stopped calling people names. It was extremely hard because, you know, just on Twitter, you even call people dumb or stupid or whatever. Um, I used to really enjoy the insult clown. Um, but I, I realized that every time, you know, people would say the way that Trump speaks, they don't like it. But then they would start speaking just like him. And I realized that I was doing the exact same thing. So I completely mm. have stopped calling people names. It was definitely challenging at first. But, I, you know, I, I recommend it to everybody. It's, it's really worth a shot. <laughs> it's, it's good for your mental health. <laughs> Last question, Carol. <laughs> Different topic. Mm-hmm. I know you've done so much writing about COVID restrictions and COVID policies. Just quickly, your response to the reimposition of mask mandates in Philadelphia and now a growing list of colleges and universities. I see GW here in D.C. has now been added to the roster of the masks coming back on. 30 seconds. I think it's insanity, and I think they're absolutely coming back on. I'm a, I'm a betting woman guy, and I would absolutely bet that all of the blue cities are going to be masked again in the very near future. Um, the ones that hold out, uh, I, you know, would, would sort of be the ones that I think of as uh, will have potential for growth in the future. And the ones that don't, I think, are heading down a really bad path. Well, I think if the Democratic Party has an electoral death wish, then they will do this sort of thing, because uh, I think the backlash would be enormous. We'll see. So far, it's just a handful of spots. But Carol Markowitz, on the record, is a betting woman. She thinks this is going to spread. We'll see. Carol Markowitz, columnist at The New York Post and FoxNews.com. Carol, thank you. Thank you. We will step aside and come right back after this short break. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Bring you another Fox News alert. President Joe Biden has begun his remarks in Menlo, Iowa on the issue of inflation, and he's, of course, doing the Putin price hike talking points. So it's a blame game given this massive failure of policy and the pain the American people are in, and he's going to try to blame everyone but himself and his party in their insane spending spree. And so sometimes we dip into major news events as they occur. This is not a major news event. This is a propaganda speech by a president who has no idea what he's doing on this subject and wants to insult our intelligence. So I'm not going to have him insult our intelligence here on this show. If he says something newsworthy or true, that would be another alert. Maybe we'd bring that to you in due time if necessary. But this is, you know, him reading off a teleprompter, doing his best to spin away what's happening after the terrible March inflation report was released this morning. We will have Charles Payne joining us in the next segment to talk about it. Meanwhile, I want to play you this clip. It was from a few days ago at the Reagan Library. Amy Coney Barrett, Supreme Court Justice, was doing a a discussion on stage, big audience, and a leftist heckler jumped in and screamed at her. Here was her response, cut 20. I was trying to drive my car down the street, and they would open the doors to block. Uh 
Yes, fortunately, as a mother of seven, I am used to distractions. <laughs> um, and sometimes even outbursts. <laughs> oh, that's a cool character right there. The notorious ACB with a smile just crushing this woman. Oh, I'm used to the occasional outburst from my seven children. Her response to an adult woman calling her an enslaver of women. This goes back to our conversation with Carol last segment. The insane rhetoric around our politics is nuts. And that was a nice, well-played moment there. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. With us now here on The Guy Benson Show is Charles Payne, host of Making Money with Charles Payne, which is 2 p.m. Eastern every weekday on Fox Business Network at C.V. Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, on Twitter. Charles, good to have you back here. It's great to be back. Thanks. Let's just walk through some of these numbers on the inflation report today. You know, biggest number in four decades again. And it's like the more you dig into them, in many cases, the worse it looks. I know the White House says this is Putin. Uh, I don't think many people 70, believe that it's just Putin. Putin. <laughs> yeah, seventy yeah, percent is what they're claiming. <laughs> you know, I guess guy what really angers me, honestly, more than anything else, is that the White House has chosen to tackle this from a public relations point of view instead of really tackling it. And it's disheartening to me. You know, there's a great piece out from Penn Wharton on just what's happened over the last year or so with inflation and the way the economy has gone. And the deleterious, the impacts on poorer households where expenses are rocketing so much faster than pay increases, if you're lucky enough to get one, is the real story here. And you know, explaining it away or trying to blame it on Vladimir Putin when this goes all the way back for a very long time. Uh, you could even argue the gas prices and crude oil popped the day he was elected, in part because the market reacts to, to, to jawboning, particularly from the president of the United States or the president-elect, whose number one mission was to get us off of fossil fuels. He admitted as much. We knew he was going to go to war with uh, fossil fuels. He bragged about it. And this is the consequence of it. They knew this would be the consequence. I don't think they knew they would pay such a heavy penalty, though, in, in a court of public opinion. Jesse Lee is a staffer at the White House, a senior advisor for communications on the National Economic Council at the White House. And he tweeted earlier, responding to critiques from Senator Rick Scott, who's a Republican senator, chairman of the NRSC down in Florida. He had been critical of Biden on, you know, inflation. I think it's like politics 101, given how bad it is, 8.5 percent increase in March. And here's what Jesse Lee at the White House tweeted, quote, Putin and Senator Rick Scott fully in lockstep in blaming Biden for Putin's price hike. So surprising. So now lumping Republican critics of inflation in with Putin is an interesting White House talking point. And a lot of people simply pointed out, Charles, let's look at the graphs on inflation, on gas prices, on core inflation. And they have, you know, one line is the time. When Joe Biden took over, so January 2021, another line on this graph is when Putin invaded Ukraine. There's a lot of time, many months that took place and played out in between those two events. And the numbers just spiked from Biden taking over all the way up to the moment of that invasion in Ukraine. And they've gone up further since. 
But I think this this obsession, I guess they've poll tested this or focus grouped it or something to say, if we just try to blame it all on Putin, maybe we won't catch as much of the blame. I mean, they are just not accounting for month after month after month of inflation that they were telling us wasn't a big deal or was transitory, is going to go away. And now their their latest talking point is not only Putin's price hike, but if you criticize Biden for it, you're throwing in your lot with Vladimir Putin. That is, to me, pretty crazy, actually, that they're trying that. Yeah, I think it's despicable. I really do. And I think it's dangerous. It's the kind of really dangerous rhetoric that someone who promised to unite the country would never try. I mean, this is... You know, I got to say, for everything that uh, President Biden has, you know, used uh, uh, against President Trump, uh, you know, in his own way, uh, you know, he is so divisive, so so. Uh, it feels honestly like mean spirited stuff. It's opportunity. Well, all the racial stuff. You remember during the the voting rights quote unquote sure. bill debate and saying, you know, basically you're racist segregationist. These people are following in that tradition. Here you've got, oh, you're basically on Putin's team. If you've got a problem with democratic policies on inflation, uh, I think it's fair to point to what you just did. This is not the guy who ran for president. At least this was not the image that was presented sure. to a bunch of independent moderate voters. It's, it, but it's heartbreaking for me also. You know, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in crunching numbers, but those numbers represent human beings. They represent people. They represent Americans. And it's just, it's just that everything they've done has backfired in part because – and I think people have to understand this very clearly. There is no true economic agenda for President Biden. There's a climate change agenda. Same with President Obama. Now, you have to wrap it in the veneer of economics from time to time. But one, their number one goal is climate change, the climate change agenda. And by, no matter how they get there, no matter how many lives they have to destroy or crush, they will get there. And if they can talk their way, public relations their way, message their way through, it's fine. But we should always well, and make it's, sure it's not we working right now. There is no, obviously, there is no right. economic agenda. This is all a climate change agenda. Well, when you look at the polling on the economy and inflation, he's just getting absolutely uh, hammered by the American people right now because things aren't going well. I would note a few things there. They're talking about wage increases. That's fine. But those are being overwhelmed by inflation. So real wages are down 2.8 percent. Also, our inflation here in the United States, our inflation problem is pretty substantially worse than it is in Europe, which might be, I guess, one of the counterpoints to the whole, you know, Putin talking point here. We, we have it particularly bad. It's particularly acute in the United States under unified democratic governance. I feel like, you know, that is part of the political reality. The other political reality here is what real people are feeling, Charles. To your point, I see Heather Long at The Washington Post went through some of the sectors saying inflation is more than just a story on gas prices. Groceries up 10 percent, biggest spike since 1981. Meat, poultry, fish plus 18 or excuse me, 13.8 percent, biggest spike since 1979. New cars, 12.6 percent up, biggest ever. Electricity plus 11.1 percent. Biggest since 2006. Home furnishing, 10.8. Biggest ever. Rent, 5.1. Largest since 1991. Real expenses for real people, up, up, up. And the answer that they have is blame Trump, blame Putin. 
Yeah. And by the way, let me add to that. Uh, we had, uh, because there's so much news, this NFIB, NFIB, the largest organization for small businesses, had their uh, report out today on on their confidence or lack thereof. And when the question was asked about um, owners expecting better business conditions over the next six months, it declined to the lowest level on record. 48 years they've been keeping this. So it's, it's, it's poor households, it's small businesses, it's the heartbeat of our country that, you know, when we talk about the ladder of success, those are the things that need to be the most optimistic, that need to have the most runway, not handouts, runway, to pull themselves up, to generate core organic growth and opportunity. And that's where we're seeing the most, uh, most pain right now. Charles, lastly, I want to pick your brain on the R word. We've heard it from a few different people, including worries from Larry Summers, who was dismissed and poo-pooed when he was worrying about warning about inflation last year. Uh, oops, they were wrong to dismiss what he had to say. He's also warning that a recession might be coming. And I'm seeing now reports about more economists getting polled and saying that they're expecting a recession in the United States within the next 24 to 48 months. What is your view on that? How are you thinking about the recession question? I'm leaning certainly toward it within that time frame. I think 24 months, you know, you, you use a lot of things, including the inverted yield curve. But, uh, you know, I just I think there's going to be a few things that happen here. Um, I think the Fed is going to overreact, the Federal Reserve, the same Federal Reserve that's kept telling us everything was transitory. Uh, I, I think the regulatory environment is going to continue to also hamper us. You know, uh, earlier in the week, Puerto Rico uh, was out of power for almost two days, and yeah. they said they could have fixed it if they had regulations that would have allowed them to fix it. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, you just kind of think about the regulatory environment we're in. Uh, and then it's just a combination just, of factors, it sounds like. And I hope you're wrong. I hope a lot of these people are wrong, but it's definitely a word that is cropping up more and more. Charles Payne from the Fox Business Network. Catch him every day at 2 p.m. on that network. Charles, thank you. Thank you, buddy. See you. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. Continuing here on the subject of inflation, debt, and the economy, I saw that some left-wingers were excitedly sharing today some comments from Senator Debbie Stabenow, who's a Democrat from Michigan, who is responding to Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate. And she said this, quote, there was seven trillion in new debt and two point six million jobs lost during Trump. But when McConnell comes to this podium, all he does is complain that we're not cleaning up their mess fast enough. End quote. You got a lot of yas queening about that quote. But if that's what the Democrats are expecting to work for them. Heading into November, they're going to get absolutely clobbered. So let's make a few points about this argument, if you can call it that. She says there's $7 trillion in new debt under Trump. Okay. First off, let me concede there was way too much new debt added under the Trump administration, including when Republicans controlled Congress. There is a bipartisan spending problem in this country. I talked about it when Obama was president. I talked about it when Trump was president. I'm talking about it now under President Biden. The Republicans talk a good game on debt and deficits, and they often fail to live up to that rhetoric, at least too often. 
Now, they are less insane than the Democrats are on these issues, but that's only a partial excuse. Now, related to that point, the spending under Trump, the new debt under Trump, first of all, was heavily related to the emergency pandemic, a global pandemic that shut down the world, shut down our economy. Trillions went out the door in emergency measures. Would we have been in better position to do that and sustain that blow if we didn't have a mountain of debt already created? Yes. But that figure, that number, a lot of that was attributable to the COVID emergency, which was worldwide. Also, almost all of that, because the spending was bipartisan on COVID until the $2 trillion in 2021 under United Democratic control. Before that, it was bipartisan spending. So to lay that at the feet of Donald Trump, if you're the Democrats, doesn't work because the Democrats voted for virtually all of that spending. And to the extent to which Democrats opposed the new debt, the spending under Trump over the course of those four years, it was because they felt like it was not enough spending. That the Democrats weren't out here in Washington saying this reckless runaway spending by the Republicans is dangerous. We want to spend less money. Let's curb federal spending. Let's reform federal spending. Of course they weren't doing that. They were saying what we need is more. So to attack Republicans for de- So to attack the Republicans for being weak on deficits and debt is a clean hit in some ways unless you're the party that wanted everything to be worse with much more spending, with your whole party except for like three people just voting to add five trillion more in the middle of inflation on Build Back Better. Every House Democrat except for one of them voted for that bill, and every Senate Democrat supported it except for Joe Manchin and maybe Kirsten Sinema. So if they're going to try to sit here and say, look at all this terrible debt under Trump, the truth is they voted for basically all of that spending and their opposition was rooted in that spending not being enough to the extent that they were opposed at all. Now, what about the 2.6 million jobs lost during Trump? Yeah, you know, some of that had to do with, once again, a little thing called the coronavirus pandemic, which shut down the entire damn economy. Of course, there were millions of jobs that hemorrhaged during that emergency. And we've been building back, so to speak, ever since. And by the way, guess who's led the way on the recovery? When you look at jobs gained and unemployment rates coming down, what are the places in this country that are chiefly responsible for that recovery? It's red states. It's the Republican-led states that ignored, frankly, the Biden administration's COVID policies and said, no, we're going to run our state our way. Thanks for the advice, Tony and Joe. We're going to do it the Florida way or the Texas way or the Utah way or the Iowa way or the South Dakota way. You name it. And when you look at the states that have recovered their jobs and then some, the ones that are driving the recovery – They are overwhelmingly red Republican-led states doing the opposite thing of what the Democrats insisted was the pro-science responsible thing to do.
So Biden can try to take credit for some of that. It's getting, of course, swamped by inflation. But the good news in this country economically is emanating overwhelmingly from Republican-led states doing the opposite of what people like Debbie Stabenow wanted to have happen. And yet they're trying to position themselves as the great champions of job growth while pinning the job losses on Trump in the, like the teeth of the pandemic, where they were the chief advocates for keeping things locked down and shut down and restricted as much as possible. They have to hope people don't remember anything about the last three or four years, like how great the economy was doing in 2019, for example, before the virus showed up from China and ruined the world for a while. If you just ask voters to have a collective sense of amnesia, a huge, big case of amnesia, and forget everything about 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, maybe these excuses could work in 2022. And then that last line, oh, McConnell comes here and he's complaining we're not cleaning up their mess, meaning the Republicans' mess, fast enough. The idea that COVID was the Republicans' mess, I think, is preposterous, just from a scientific standpoint, then also from the economic facts that I just gave you. And we've given you example after example, study after study about economic recovery in red versus blue states. The economic mess in this country is Worse than it needs to be right now because of Democrats and blue state leaders, including the Democrats in the White House right now. That is not the Republicans mess. That is the world's mess. That is, to a large degree, worse in heavily Democratic states and areas. The bluer the place, the worse the economic recovery has been, by and large. And last but not least, Democrats control everything. They've had the House since 2018. They've had the Senate throughout Joe Biden's presidency. They are in charge of Washington, D.C. Official Washington has a letter next to its name, and it's a big capital letter D. The American people put them in charge of everything. And the American people can look around and see the results of that. And to pretend that this is still the Republicans' mess. I think is just a complete and total non-starter. So I hope they go with this. I hope they go high-fiving each other about this all being Donald Trump's fault and the Republicans' fault and all this debt and all the jobs lost. And really, we're the ones you should be thanking, and they're the ones who are to blame, and the mess isn't really ours. It's still theirs. Go for it. Good luck with that. The beatdown in November will be epic if that's the approach. So I encourage it. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Kim Strassel joins me after this break. Stay with us. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour on this Tuesday. It's the Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C. Thank you very much for listening. Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, also around the clock on demand at GuyBensonShow.com. Lots of ways to listen live or after the fact, including our free 
podcast every single day, GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious, refreshing, and more of you continue trying it every day, every week I hear from you guys. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where it's sold near you. You can also order online. It is a refreshing citrus soda with a premium liquor kick, the number one alcoholic beverage in Finland for decades, and it has come to America. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Thank you. Joining us now to kick off our final hour is Kimberly Strassel, Potomac Watch columnist at The Wall Street Journal, also a Fox News contributor. Check out her latest book, Resistance at All Costs. Kim, welcome back to the show. Hi, Guy. It's great to be here. I want to play some audio for you, and I've been discussing this now over the course of several shows. We talked about it yesterday with Howie Kurtz, but I really wanted to get your reaction to it in particular. The University of Chicago, a few days last week, hosted a conference on disinformation, and it was mostly journalists and leftists with a handful of exceptions. It was sponsored by The Atlantic and also by the University of Chicago. I think David Axelrod was instrumental in this event. And there were a few, not incidents, but exchanges that occurred that got some attention online. Specifically, there was a lot of groupthink on stage, and there were some right-leaning University of Chicago students who tried to challenge or puncture some of that groupthink. One of those back-and-forths that went a little bit viral on social was between a student and a writer at The Atlantic named Ann Applebaum talking about disinformation, misinformation, credibility. Listen to the question, then the answer from this mainstream journalist in Cut 12. So in 2020, you wrote, those who live outside the Fox News bubble do not, of course, need to learn any of this stuff about Hunter Biden, referring to his laptop, of course. Uh, A poll later after that found that if voters knew about the content of the laptop, 16 percent of Joe Biden voters would have acted differently. Now, of course, we know a few weeks ago the New York Times confirmed that the content is real. Do you think the media acted inappropriately when they instantly dismissed uh, Hunter Biden's laptop as Russian disinformation? my, My problem with Hunter Biden's laptop is, I think, totally irrelevant. I mean, it's not whether it's disinformation or... I mean, I don't think the Hunter Biden's um, business relationships have anything to do with who should be president of the United States. So I, didn't fi- I don't find it to be interesting. I mean, that, that would be my problem with the, that as a, as a major news story. Okay, Kimberly, a few ways I'm sure to react to that. But as I've said several times, there's a very big difference. There's a canyon between I don't think it's interesting or relevant and this is disinformation furnished by the Russian government to tip an election, right? Yeah, it's remarkable to watch everybody come up with all kinds of updated excuses. Okay, so you have Ann Applebaum, and apparently this isn't interesting to her, which, by the way, also is just a really weird standard guy. Like, I mean, do do I get to say, like, well, I'm not really interested in Elon Musk, so I'll just ignore what he does with Twitter, or I'm not really interested in the Ukraine war, so we just won't cover it. I mean, that's not really the standard. News is news. But you're seeing all of these different excuses. You have the Washington Post out saying, well, it just took us a really long time to verify this information, you know, Mm. 18 months. Somehow the New York Post managed to do it in a couple of days, but the Washington Post, it took them 18 months, um, or the New York Times, which just even ignores it, doesn't even give a reason for why it didn't bother to do this for so long. But rather, well, and NPR, by the way, NPR bragged to their listeners, NPR put out a statement saying, like, affirmatively, we are not going to cover this story because it's not a real story and it doesn't matter. 
Right. No, I know. Look, they didn't want to cover the story. Okay. And then when pressure rose to have to cover the story, they conveniently went out and got these intelligence analysts um, and others to claim that it was disinformation as their excuse to not write the story. But now they can't ignore it anymore because an arm of the federal government is investigating this. Um, And, you know, by the way, there was another arm of the federal government that investigated this, which was called Congress and put out a rock solid report on uh, Hunter Biden uh, weeks before. The New York Post even put forward this laptop, and it was based on federal government documents, and they ignored that too. What is your argument to people who say, move on, yes, maybe the media screwed up or maybe the media buried this for whatever reason, and we understand why conservatives are angry about it looking back at the 2020 election, but in terms of the news cycle today, Hunter Biden and his business interactions and entanglements overseas really aren't all that important or relevant. What would be your rebuttal to that? If you have one, I mean, you might agree with that premise. I think there's some truth behind that premise, but I think you can't really divorce what's happening right now with Hunter Biden and the total stifling and censorship of that story right before an election. I think they're intertwined. There are two huge reasons. But first of all, let me tell you why I, why I don't think it's important, because I'm hearing a number of people on the right make this argument, and they've instantly just suggested that if Joe Biden had any involvement or knowledge of Hunter Biden's business dealing, that it counts as corruption. And that's a very wide claim to make, especially because – for some of these transactions, Joe Biden wasn't in the White House anymore. He was a private citizen, okay? And so if he wants to engage in a business deal, he can. Uh, But here's the two reasons you do care. One, because he isn't a private citizen anymore. He is the most powerful elected official in the country, and his two biggest issues at the moment are places like uh, Russia and China. And if Hunter Biden was engaged in questionable business dealings, there are legitimate concerns about whether or not there are any liabilities for this White House in terms of uh, counterintelligence or extortion, etc. Those are simply things we apply to all politicians. It's why we have rules about ethics and engagement in different practices. That's the first reason you care. The second reason you care is if it comes out that Joe Biden did in fact have knowledge or engagement in Hunter Biden's business dealings, then he has lied to the nation. And that is something American voters simply deserve to know the truth about. Yeah, I mean, I think that latter point is also extremely important. Even if you broom off to the side, all of this, you know, collusion between mainstream media and big tech and, of course, the Democratic Party, If you just put that out of your mind for a second, Biden has said categorically that he had no knowledge of, no discussions about, no connection to his son's business dealings at all. And the White House continues to say this has nothing to do – this story has nothing to do with the president at all. We refer you to the DOJ. We refer you to a private citizen's lawyers. This has nothing to do with the president. And Biden, even more specifically on the record in Q&A, Peter Ducey put this to him on the campaign. He said, I never had a single conversation with my son about any of it, if that is not true, and it seems to me that it's probably not true, if it's not true, then he lied for some sort of reason. And I think it is an absolutely fair question to ask, what is that reason? Why was he lying about that? And why did they decide to go Russian disinformation to quash the story right before an election? I mean, these are open questions that are not, they don't get to simply sort of vanish and vaporize into thin air because some time has passed. And then the people who said it was Russian disinformation all of a sudden wake up now and say, well, maybe it wasn't that, but it's old news and it's not terribly interesting. 
Right. And this is why it really does matter, because honestly, I can tell you, Guy, that, okay, so the federal government is investigating Hunter Biden's tax affairs and potentially whether or not he violated anything under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, other different levels of of legal standards. Uh, Why do we care? I don't really care about Hunter Biden, who is another misbehaving, you know, child of an elected politician. But I do care to the extent that he is connected to the son of the president of the United States. Um, And it strains credulity, this claim that the White House had no no interaction, that Biden had no interaction. How do you get on an airplane and go to China to conduct official business and your son gets on as well, too, and you're gone for days and you never ask him why he's along on the ride? Yeah, I mean, I think many Americans would say, hang on, that seems a bit fishy, uh, to put it nicely, to put it <laughs> kindly. Kim Strassel, back to this University of Chicago conference, because I'm, I'm, it's like kind of a, a bugaboo of mine these last few days, because I think some of the way that this conference apparently played out is really illustrative. It really typifies some of the problems of the insularity within a lot of the elites and sort of like the ruling class or whatever you want to call them, you know, top media organizations. Here's another question. I'll just play you the question. This was posed to Brian Stelter of CNN, who was one of the experts in combating disinformation that they flew out to Chicago for this. And again, this was an undergraduate, I believe, a U of C student who just rattled off a few examples of misinformation that has gone in the other direction. And he was challenging some of the largely left-leaning people on stage over these cut 13. They pushed the Russian collusion hoax. They pushed the Jesse Smollett hoax. They smeared Justice Kavanaugh as a rapist, and they also smeared Nick Sandman as a white supremacist. And yes, they dismissed the Hunter Biden laptop affair as pure Russian disinformation. Uh, With mainstream corporate journalists becoming little more than uh, apologists and cheerleaders for the regime, is it time to finally declare that the, uh, the canon of journalistic ethics is dead or no longer operative? Uh, All the mistakes of the mainstream media and CNN in particular seem to magically all go in one direction. Are we expected to believe that this is all just some sort of random coincidence or is there something else behind it? Okay, so that's a pointed question and Stelter kind of deflected and said the media needs to do a better job of explaining their craft to people. Then he went off and pivoted to something totally irrelevant. You know, you might not like that question. That question might make you uncomfortable, but it's certainly within bounds, and he makes several important points there. In the premise of the question, sort of building up a few examples, I want to now play for you, Kim, Jeffrey Goldberg, who's the Atlantic editor-in-chief, who later on was kind of poking back at these conservative students who are part of a conservative publication at the University of Chicago, basically saying that they themselves are engaged in disinformation through the Q and A that you just heard and some of their other questions at this conference, cut 14. I think one darkly humorous but inevitable uh, measurement of our success is that um, our disinformation conference has been the subject of disinformation campaigns on social media already. Uh, So, yeah. Congratulate yourselves for that. Uh, that, that, uh, We'll we'll study that at next year's disinformation. so next year's conference should be a lot of fun. But he was widely interpreted in that statement to be sort of clapping back at these University of Chicago students who were just posting videos of what was happening on stage, including some of these viral exchanges, some of these questions. And the implication is, well, look, 
we're doing a great job covering disinformation because they're already spreading disinformation about our discussions of disinformation. And I just feel like we are really, really defining down or defining out of existence disinformation and misinformation if we're talking about tough or pointed questions from one side of the aisle against a dominant worldview represented at the conference. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. By the way, I refuse to use that word, disinformation, um, just because it no longer has any meaning, um, and it's become a politicized word. It increasingly stands for opinions with which I do not agree. Um, and so, But then it's also used, obviously, by dint of the connotations it has to suggest that uh, just because it's an opinion I don't agree with, but somehow it's not valid, somehow it's a lie, somehow it's been conjured up uh, by nefarious forces and, and so as not to be believed. Uh, it really is stultifying to debate. But can I go back to, to that first clip you, you played of yeah. that very pointed question about uh, the examples and uh, the failure of the mainstream media? I actually really liked that one because it, it, it was very pointed, but in a more broad sense, it asks us to remember this basic point, which is why does the media exist? And this was my huge issue, especially with the Russian collusion hoax, because it exposed how far off path the media gone. We have a free press, which, by the way, gets its own note and mention in the Constitution to hold government to account. OK, not to stitch on private private fellows, uh, you know, not to bring down uh, your local businessmen, but to hold government to account. And by virtue of that, it means that you do not, as a journalist, uh, ever just swallow whatever the government is telling you and regurgitate it because that is not journalism. That's propaganda. And yet we increasingly see that to be the case. I mean, how many disgraced FBI officials did the media act as scribes for throughout the Russia collusion hoax when they should have been asking – and hired them and put them on TV and made them commentators, and many of them are still out there, and, and gave them book deals and fedded them uh, when they should have been run out of town in disgrace for having failed in their jobs and lied to the American people about what was really going on. Um, or if you want to be more gracious, uh, who, they simply got bamboozled by a political campaign. But however you want to look at it, you're either, you were either ignorant or you were malevolent. Either way, that's not a, a very high praise. Um, and so until we remember that that's what the media exists to do is to, in fact, push back on prevailing Washington and government narratives, we're not going to fix this. Oh, they do that when the prevailing narratives come from one side of the aisle. They're much less inclined to do so when it's their side of the aisle, meaning the left side of the aisle, the Democratic side of the aisle, which is where most journalists reside and how they vote and how they think and how they feel Let's take a quick break. When we come back, more with Kim Strassel, another subject as soon as we return to The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Kimberly Strassel, last question briefly. You have another piece out recently about D.C. crying COVID poverty. The White House saying they need a lot more money just for basic things like testing and treatments and they're running out of money already and it's very important to spend even more i have found this line to be maddeningly insulting given that they've spent what five or six trillion dollars if that is what they're saying and they want us to take them seriously that they are now out of money for basic covid stuff how is that not one of the most damning self-indictments in the history of washington 
It's the biggest lie. I mean, you just mentioned those numbers, 6.6 trillion in fiscal 2020, 6.8 trillion in fiscal 2021. And we know where it went. 350 billion blank check to the states, more than 100 billion dollars, the K through 12 education, most of it not going to get spent until the out years. Um, We've got states using this on remodeling hotels and golf courses um, and, you know, putting in new bike paths. Nothing that has anything to do with COVID, even though that last bill that the, the Biden administration passed uh, a year ago was told that it was a COVID rescue plan. And the notion that they're now claiming that we do not have the basics to even keep up with vaccines is insulting. Um, And if they want any more money, it should all have to be clawed back from some of these other priorities. Yeah, obviously. I mean, if, if you're telling us you have no money left for vaccines, treatments and testing, then take this out your spending on totally unrelated things that you've lied to us about and claimed was urgent COVID relief, take that money away from whatever it's been earmarked for and put it to the actual cause, put it to the actual task at hand, as opposed to demanding that we pony up even more money or we, frankly, borrow even more money to do the thing that they sold us was the whole point in the first place. It is insulting is the right word. I'm glad that you dug into some of the numbers. People can read that column at the Wall Street Journal. Kim Strassel, Potomac Watch columnist at the aforementioned Journal, also a Fox News contributor. Her book is Resistance at All Costs. Kim, always enjoy it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Guy. I really appreciate it. And we'll be right back on the happy hour next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. And we are back on the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Earlier today, we caught up with our friend Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post and FoxNews.com, a New Yorker who's now transplanted herself and her family down in Florida. We talked about a lot of different issues today. Here's a taste of our conversation with Carol Markowitz. Do you have any initial reaction to this attack that we've all been following in your former city, New York City, earlier today? Yeah. I mean, my heart goes out to everybody. It's a train that I took off in. Um, It's a stop that I know well. Uh, It's just it's really devastating that New York is going through this today. Um, I I got some news that I shared on my Twitter about uh, fireworks being found at the scene as well as a Glock pistol. Um, And that the police are currently looking for a U-Haul with Arizona plates, which I know a lot of U-Hauls actually have Arizona plates. And um, I I shared the number on my Twitter that people that the police officers are looking for right now. The license plate. Yes. Okay, And if people want to find you on Twitter, you're at Carol with a K, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. Well, thank you for that information. And I want to ask you now about another New York related news story, uh, not nearly as scary as this one, but also quite significant. We haven't mentioned it yet today. The sitting serving lieutenant governor of New York State, Mm -hmm. a Democrat, has been arrested on bribery charges. So Kathy Hochul was the lieutenant governor. She is now governor because the previous governor resigned in disgrace, although there's discussions about whether or not he wants to come back. So the newly Mm -hmm. elevated new lieutenant governor is now under arrest on bribery charges. Uh, That story has sort of gotten crushed a little bit under the the weight of the rest of the news, obviously involving New York City. But 
it has been uh, quite a stretch here for New York state politicians. And I wonder, I, look, <laughs> really I know has. New York is, is a very blue state, but mm-hmm. in a red year and the Democrats in this kind of disarray and corruption and all sorts yeah. of stuff, do you think there's a realistic possibility for someone like Lee Zeldin running for governor on the Republican side to actually have a shot in the fall? I mean, there is a possibility. New York is a very blue state, and I think it's becoming more blue all the time as people leave New York. I I really think that this mass migration out of New York state has been primarily red voting people. So I think it's getting bluer. Um, It it is possible because things have gotten so bad that that and when things get sort of to the rock bottom, it's where New Yorkers reach for other kinds of leadership. Um, so it's not it's not completely out of the realm of possibility, but unlikely. Uh, but, yeah, I would say New York has had quite a run of uh, scandals. I mean, going back to Elliot Spitzer as governor, Eric Schneiderman as attorney general, and they've really had just a wild ride of – uh, resignations and criminal charges. I mean, Anthony Weiner, right? Anthony Weiner comes to yeah. mind. <laughs> well, right, Anthony Weiner, but he was a congressman. But yes, absolutely. Um, it's it's really been sort of amazing and insane to watch. And the details of this, in case you're curious, this is Brian Benjamin, Lieutenant Governor of New mm-hmm. York, a Democrat, indicted for alleged bribery and other offenses in what. Federal prosecutors say it was a scheme to get campaign contributions in exchange for state grants. The indictment also alleges that the lieutenant governor and others worked to cover up that plot, engaging in, quote, a series of lies and deception, which, uh, again, seems to be kind of like a tradition, a great tradition, at least recently <laughs> in New York politics, a scheme with yep. a bunch of lies and cover up. So maybe this lieutenant governor is getting a, a phone call today from a former governor, and they can commiserate together. Right. <laughs> in the meantime, Carol, you're down in Florida. Yeah. I've talked yeah. a fair amount about this on the show. I did a big monologue on it yesterday mm-hmm. as well. This whole gender identity, sexual orientation, education mm-hmm. question. And the law down in Florida, yeah. now some bills introduced in other states. I think some of those other bills are significantly worse, in my view, than mm-hmm. what happened in Florida. And the bill in Florida, of course, was, I think, mischaracterized by a lot of people. That full discussion available online on our podcast which is on demand and free every day, the whole show, no charge to you, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a bit of a hodgepodge, including a music review of a brand-new hit song from an artist you may have heard of. We'll get to that, a breakdown and deep analysis next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Free podcast every day. So a few stories to get to here in our final segment. First, I want to just confess that Jenny's ice cream has won this round. You may recall on the show, I had had a few choice words about Jenny's ice cream and their one flavor in particular, the everything bagel flavor. So they reached out to us and sent us six pints of different flavors, and we did an on-air taste test. And it was very fun for me. It was on my birthday, and it was not as powerful, perhaps, as it would have been on TV, 
But you could hear – I tried to do some – what is it called? ASMR. You could hear me opening the thing and then eating a little bit from the spoon. We had a different spoon for each pint. And my favorite flavor that I'd never tried before from them was this brown almond brittle, something like that. And it was really, really good, and it disappeared really fast at my house. It was like there, and then Adam and I both liked it. And then within a matter of days, it was just uh, depleted. So I was at the grocery store last night. I was in the freezer aisle, and what do my eyes see but a display of Jenny's ice cream? And my brain immediately goes to that flavor. It's like, gosh, I wonder if they have it. And boom, there it was. Multiple pints available. Look at the price, which I did mention on the air was a bit steep. Jenny's ice cream known for not being terribly affordable. But they got me dropping like eight bucks on a pint of ice cream because their little public relations stunt was successful. They wanted me talking about it. They wanted you hearing about it. They wanted you trying it. And they wanted someone like me getting, like, hooked on the product. Right, where the first round is, oh, the first round's on us. Like, ah, well, joke's on them. I'm not going to pay for this stuff. It's delicious, but I'm not going to pay for it. And then here we are a few weeks later, and guess who paid for it? So you win this round, Jenny. We'll see about the future. Next up, we were on the call earlier today planning the show, and producer Christine Cookie very just knowingly says, well, we all know what today's home stretch is going to be about. And there is a pause, a silence. Wyatt, Dan, and I just have no idea what she might have in her brain, which is usually the case. And she says, obviously, it's Britney Spears and her pregnancy. And I had barely seen this as a headline, but it seems as though Christine was able to take a break from watching – the ultimatum on Netflix to binge. I'm binging on ice cream. She's binging on Britney news. So do we know who the father here is, Christine? Oh, yeah. We know who the father is. His name is um, Sam. And I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but I believe it's Eskrahi. This is her boyfriend? Yeah, they've been, they're engaged now, but they've been dating for years. He seems, you know, like a pretty good guy. He's confirmed. So this is... Her third and their first together. Correct. Correct. Got it. And how does this play into another celebrity story this week with Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez apparently engaged again? Because I, I don't really follow this stuff too closely, but they were engaged at a time and they were a huge power couple like back in the early to mid 2000s. Yep. Then they broke it off, as is always the case with Jennifer Lopez. She just has this collection of rings, apparently, where Six. people propose and she gets a giant rock and then the engagement gets broken off. Do we know if Ben Affleck had to get a new ring or could he just, like, recycle the same one from last time? No, he got a new ring. By the way, this is her sixth engagement. Um, now, but- why would he – to me, I would say, you know, I feel like the last ring was pretty nice. It was. Let's just stick with that one, considering that it didn't work out, but well, now we're going to try again. Exactly. Or is this like part of her business model to just no. say yes? You can't use the same ring. It's bad yes, luck. Can. Obviously, no. they broke up. Like, that's probably doesn't have amazing memories. 
for Jen. And let's be honest, Ben can afford a new ring. The last ring he bought her was— Wait, hang on. If this is, if this is engagement number six for her, mm-hmm. could the bad luck charm maybe be her? No. No. Really? Of really? She can do no wrong. I guarantee you. And I, I really truly mean this. I bet you it's not her. It's them. Oh, I doubt that very much. I feel like I'm actually going to make a Britney Spears reference here. That song, the hit song where she was the flight attendant on the plane. Do you remember that song, Christine? Uh, yes, Toxic. I feel like that might be a word that applies to this situation and this dynamic. I'm just saying. I have nothing personal against J-Lo, but that's well, I mean, a lot of diamonds. Well, we can go through person by person, and I can explain to you why Let's each not. one was— Exactly. Let's exactly. not. I know there was an A-Rod in there. I know yeah, there was a Ben Affleck twice. Who else was in there? Was there, like— Mark, Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony. Mm-hmm. Ben Affleck. Um, Chris Judd. Remember her backup dancer? Nope. Don't remember that at all. Um, I think his the first marriage was—, was I, P. Diddy in there, too? They they were I never engaged, but they dated. Okay. That's Got where it. she I mean, became at, You should know that, as C. Diddy would be an expert on P. Diddy's love life. So does it feel like it's 2004 all over again with Britney Spears pregnant and Benifer back together and engaged? And does that make you very happy? I feel like you probably have a lot of nostalgia for 2004 Oh, I totally do. Like, I'm not going to be wearing the low-rise jeans that I once wore back then. I am a 40-year-old mature woman now. But, yes, this brings me joy. I'm so excited for a Benifer wedding. I'm so excited to see how this Why whole- do you think there's going to be a wedding this time? Oh, I mean, if you're coming back together, I mean, this is just a, such a romantic story, don't you think? She said yes, again. <laughs> she she didn't end the relationship the last time. I don't know if you followed, but Ben... Ben had some uh, challenges in his life that she mm. needed to step away from. I, we can't go through yeah. all this. We just okay, can't. Okay, so it was never her. It was always them. I mean, maybe. It plausible. usually always Plus, is the guy. Let's be honest. I mean, we could have a whole conversation, but let's be honest. It wow. usually always wow. is the if, guy. Look, God forbid, God forbid, and I think it'll never happen, but if I were to find out tomorrow that things were over, Splitsville, between Cookie and Bobby, <gasps> My first instinct would not be, oh, gosh, what has Bobby done? So that has been a conversation that my friends and I have had because they've always said, like, the one instance (laughs) if there was a divorce is me and Bobby, where they would say, like, oh, what did she do now? Yes, they would assume immediately it was the woman, in this case, you. I find that very unfair. You'd be tweeting up a storm at... Cookies Jar in oh, 1988. He, oh, Bobby be going down. Bobby, this is a warning. Uh, Don't even think about divorcing me. Yeah, because you'll get dragged by Cookies Jar 1988 on the Twitter, and uh, that's a powerful, powerful weapon, probably for his uh, attorney, actually, to, to use against you. But here's the thing. We're talking about Britney. We're talking about J-Lo. These are pop stars, and there is an emerging musical star that you've heard of, not in this context— But Jussie Smollett, the race hoaxer and convicted felon who is now, I guess, awaiting sentencing based on appeal or we're waiting for the final resolution. But he's been convicted. He has put out a song. He has recorded a song for 
all of humanity, and we should all be very grateful, in which he once again maintains his innocence, which is, of course, a lie, like everything else that he said about this incident. But he decided to put it to song, put it to music. And so what we're going to do here, it's unusual for us at The Guy Benson Show. We don't do a lot of music critiques on the show. But we are going to evaluate this song called Thank You, God, which is pretty bold, by Jesse Smollett. And then our resident music expert, Dan, our engineer, who once was on American Idol, we are going to let him give his analysis of the song. Here's just a snippet of Thank You, God, the breakout hit by Jesse Smollett. Take my ego out. Some people searching for fame, some people chasing that cloud. Just remember this, this ain't that situation. You think I'm stupid enough to keep my reputation. Just simply to look like a victim, like it's something fun. I better look at someone else who's the wrong one. Okay. Uh, Dan, what do you think of the song? Well, I just have to preface, this is not a song I'd really like kind of seek out and listen to, but since I care about the content of the show, I did listen to it. Um, I think the musicianship is not bad. I mean, it's very much in the zeitgeist of what's you know popular right now in music, and the production quality is pretty good. Having is it? Because s- I can barely hear the words that he's saying. That's like getting garbled behind well, the beat. Yeah, the beats. The beats good. The beat is what I'm really talking about. But you don't. You want to hear that over what he's saying because it's just really hard to listen to and to follow. So I do have to say that it's just a cringy, cringy song to listen to. And just it's just monotonous. It's just one like long tone, and it doesn't bring anything or change much. And so I I don't know. It's it's pretty pretty bad. You're not a fan of the stylings of Jesse Smollett. You don't <laughs> I, think this one's going to rocket to the top of the charts? I don't think I'm going to put him in any like Spotify playlists or anything like that. No. Yeah, Christine, you're a rapper. Uh, uh, what yes. was your take on this? I mean, that is that really a song? No. My I, first of all, he could have come to me. I could have helped him a little bit. Would you have helped him? Probably not. But, no, it was terrible. And I just want you to know, can I also be, what is Dan? He's like our music critique of the show. Well, music expert, because he was either what, did you audition for American Idol, Dan? Were you on the show? So I auditioned, and my audition um, was going to be on the show, and they cut it last second. So I technically Ah. wasn't on it, but I do have the video of it. But that is still much more of a place of expertise than... Me? Producer Christine. No, th- yeah, I mean, but Bobby says that I have a voice like a choir of angels. That is a very kind thing for him to lie to you about. Now, Quiet Wyatt, you have also done some rap with producer Christine under duress against your wishes, but you did it, especially in the early days. You basically just agreed uh, to do basically whatever Christine asked you to do. Do he you have do any that thoughts anymore. on this? He's um, learned. He's grown. All I would say is that that would not be on my my war playlist. I just that that's not something I would listen to. War Wyatt would not send the troops into battle to this song. Thank you, God, by Jussie Smollett. I'll just close with this. That song, and this is indisputable. That song is more of a hate crime than anything that has actually happened to Jussie Smollett. Right? You can't really argue with that. I know he would, but. The evidence is the evidence, and the verdict is the verdict. So this is a fun little career pivot for Jussie. We wish him the best, by which I mean we really don't. 
And we just want to mix it up here on The Guy Benson Show. You never know what you're going to get in the home stretch. Music criticism, a new feature here on the program. We'll see if we'll ever need to bring it back. In the meantime, we're done. Returning tomorrow for the Wednesday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. We will talk to you then. Have a wonderful evening, and thank you for listening. Oh, yeah. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.